Hello and welcome. This is the Bits vs. Byte podcast. I'm your host, Amagrigic, and today with me are uh, Reshad and Faris Zacina. Uh, they are uh, both the founders for Ministry of Programming, and I would like to uh, welcome you to the show, guys. Hey, Amr, thank you for inviting us. It's a great honor to be here. Yeah, this is, is is the first time that I have two guests, <laughs> so that's uh, that's going to be a little bit of a little bit of an experiment as well. But uh, I uh, I enjoy having you guys on. So um, could you uh, tell a little bit about yourselves and also how you got to start the uh, Ministry of Programming? Yeah, sure. So um, so in two thousand and fifteen, uh, we started with Ministry of Programming uh, at the time. Uh, we were living in, in two different cities. Uh, I was in Stockholm and Faris was in Sarajevo, in Bosnia. And, uh, you know, even at that time, our our network uh, was already pretty interesting. Um, I was uh, a lead developer at Fishbrain and uh, Faris was doing a lot of stuff in the in the music tech industry. He was working on uh, with a company called Mixed in Key in Miami. Uh, for uh, for example, Fishbrain was one of the top 50 digital startups in Europe in 2016, and also um, this, this company Mixed and Key, where Faris was working, is one of the flagship names in the DJ industry. Uh, the software is used by big names like David Guetta, Hardwell, etc. Uh, so you know, I mean, we knew how to build uh, great stuff. We knew how to um, how to basically make companies succeed. Uh, we had quite a few uh, startup experiences already, and then you know um, it was like a combination of things that made us uh, start MOP. Uh, one of the reasons was basically that we wanted to leverage all of that knowledge we accumulated over the years, uh, the connections and everything else. But and we also we wanted to help other people uh, to spin new things. Um, also, uh, the second reason was the actual struggle that I was going on. That I was going through when I was in Stockholm because I was like an economic migrant and you know uh, I, I I just you know I just needed constantly something to to fuel uh, my my starting life there and I was let's say pushing Faris a little bit to leave the comfort zone so yeah I don't know maybe Faris can tell a couple of things as well <laughs> yeah for sure yeah yeah definitely I think it's also <clears throat> it's definitely started from uh, you know Rashad's economic struggles living abroad and you know like trying to make a living in a, in a big expensive city uh, but it also is is exactly the environment where many startups operate in um, you know like if you look at San Francisco or or uh, Silicon Valley in Silicon Valley or or if you look at uh, London or Stockholm you have this environment where you know, everything is very expensive and people are trying to build new companies uh, so I believe that was also definitely very important for us um, uh, you know that that Rashad was up there in one of these startup ecosystems, uh, and then and then we we realized that you know we should we should try to do something that's fun for us uh, as well because we worked with many other companies and we we have seen a lot of uh, you know bad things and good things in companies we worked with, and uh, then we decided okay let's start our own company let's try to make it at least incrementally better and a great place to work for us but also for the people we we want to employ. Yeah. And uh, I believe that that culture that we created was also one of the key factors why we managed to build a successful company as well. Yeah. So uh, how was it? Uh, because you guys are brothers. Uh, are, you, are you twin brothers? I don't, you look alike. So <laughs> I'm asking why. That's the reason I'm asking. 
so uh, how was it for you guys to uh, as brothers to to start a company together because uh, usually people say yeah you should uh, keep those two things separated but how was it for you guys to to start that maybe uh, Reshad can uh, can start off yeah sure so I mean for us is what was very natural because uh, as twin brothers we we always kind of take things together from the early age uh, there was even a time uh, when we even coded on the same workstation, it was maybe up until the second year of university that we got separate computers. And uh, as our financial situation was not stellar and we couldn't afford two computers, uh, this was, uh, I mean, a thing that we, I mean, we just had to make it work at the time. And uh, this made us very, very efficient uh, as a working unit. And we learned how to pair program and co-create things. Uh, it also improved the efficiency of each other when leading the work at the workstation because the other guy was always watching and giving comments and the other one had to have prime time on the, on the keyboard. Yeah. So, you know, so it was like, was, was funny. We, we, we were working with, with, uh, with scarcity and we, uh, not a lot of resources. Uh, we first started with Photoshop and design work to earn some money at university. And, uh, we did also music production for fun. And eventually, we ended up here programming and studying at university as well on the same workstation. So, um, yeah, that's that's how we began. L later, you know, it's um, it was just um, rolling into this collaboration at MOP, and uh, we did that as well as a family. And the interesting part is that that a big part of our family and friends uh, actually played key roles in the company evolution. And yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It could be hard sometimes to. Uh, to start anything with with relatives because of the emotional connections and sometimes you cannot be 100% objective but um, um, in, in our case it actually was a very very good experience so far and uh, you know um, I mean it, it was just just a learning experience for us as well uh, as we mentioned it all started from Sweden when when Amra and I were there you know and we kind of we, we had this struggle and and then we, we we brought Faris into that struggle and we just started to get everything together to to um, to make sure that mop is a reality and uh, yeah then then our sister joined you know to spin the office um, office in Sarajevo so we already had like at the time four family members <laughs> in the company and we were co consistently adding more and more people from our circle of uh, friends etc and uh, yeah it just worked you know mm. uh, actually there are many family companies in the world that people don't know about uh, like uh, bm i mean they don't know that they are family companies like uh, like for example bmw is a family company and many other ones that are quite successful yeah yeah and yeah. how was that for you uh, faris I think it's, I mean, I, I wouldn't repeat what Rashad said. Maybe, you know, I can just uh, compliment with uh, an additional comment, which is, I mean, if you look at Puritan, you know, business uh, theory or, or even feedback from many, many people, I think most will agree with you that, you know, working with family is really hard. Um, and then the thing is, because as Rashad said, you, you have this lack of objective, you know, uh, kind of um, opinion and, uh, you know, like, like some sort of... Uh, uh, distance, like safe distance, when, when you when you do things, uh, and then like family, private life and work life mix much more, of course. Uh, but fr from the other angle, I would say that what, what is very positive is uh, trust, because uh, in like in traditional business contacts, you know, when you when you find, let's say, a startup finds, uh, you know, it's like two co-founders that don't know each other, or maybe they are just 
friends from high school or uh, or the faculty, uh, you know, what is the probability that they will actually stay in in the business together for you know five, ten, fifteen years? While you know, we as a family, even like if shit has shit happened with the company, you know, like <laughs> I'm pretty sure we will just stay together, you know, and make it work. So the thing is, you know, uh, that trust factor is often you know underappreciated. I would say when people talk about you know working with family, while of course there are many logical reasons to to say you know uh, many disadvantages, but I, I believe that we are uh, we are making it work. Yeah, and what what what's interesting to me is when I think about uh, think about it in that context. Uh, it, it seems to me that it would be easier to give each other feedback, even though sometimes it's hard to be objective, of course. But um, it it seems to me that it's it's easier to say something to someone, for example, your brother or whatever, whatever than someone that's maybe a stranger or whatever. You you, you can be more honest if if it uh, if that makes sense. How, how do you yeah. feel about that? Yeah, I mean, it's I would say it's too easy, you know, like <laughs> that's the problem, you know, because. Because then, as far as said, you you end up uh, mixing like uh, this private and work life, and I mean, whoever tried it is gonna say the same thing, you know. But uh, eventually, as far as said, um, it, it's it's a great it's a great thing. And uh, one thing that we haven't mentioned is actually this family atmosphere, you know, that we built up inside the company for that reason. Because uh, starting from the space where we work, the atmosphere, caring about people, making everyone feel at home. Um, you know, we just um, we just know what people have literally for breakfast, what car they drive, you know, where they spend their evenings. We know everything about them, mm. and that's why we uh, we nail the culture part, and it's very strong for that reason. Yeah, that's a, that's also, a good point. Yeah, also to come back to your point, uh, Amr, I think it's uh, it's a very good point. I think it's uh, it's very easy to be honest, and uh, that creates a very good culture of um, you know. Uh, of disagreements of constructive disagreement and uh, you know different points of view because uh, we are twins for example but <clears throat> but i do believe we are very different <clears throat> and the thing is we can still give very honest feedback to each other and uh, be skeptical about many things and then uh, you know maybe sometimes gonna heat up but then we resolve it very quickly and uh, i think that creates uh, that creates a very good way uh, of operating because because if i do something I'm pretty sure that Rashad will be very skeptical about it, you know, and then we're going to question it and uh, find a b better path. And I try to do the same with Rashad. So I think this culture where we agree to disagree is very important for uh, operating. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and uh, w to get back to 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 you guys as uh, as a company, so could you uh, could you tell a little bit about what you do and and how uh, how you operate? Yeah, I can start again. It's uh, you know, <clears throat> Actually, it's very simple to explain what uh, MOP does. Uh, since 90% of startups fail, uh, what we do is that we increase the odds for the startups to succeed. And uh, what we are addressing to make that happen is actually uh, the product part and the recruitment part. So we offer a software services uh, designed for startups, uh, which includes product management, design, development. And basically, we just try to be the service company that startups were dreaming of. We help them with whatever we can to, to make them not fail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, uh, it's actually like a special type of service company because uh, most consultancies are not designed to actually work with startups. Uh, also, like uh, you know, if you look at the larger ecosystem, 
I think it's it's very tough for early stage companies in Stockholm or London or Berlin to succeed because uh, they have, for example, you have uh, several options in terms of you know recruitment. You can hire your own team, uh, or you can just hire external consultants uh, or freelancers. But all of these options are really tough, and we can get into that more if you like. But uh, you know whoever works in San Francisco or uh, Stockholm knows what I'm talking about. And I think it's uh, on the on the product side. Uh, the problem is that most consulting companies are not really built to work with startups or new products. Uh, and then they offer like a cookie cutter approach to software development where, you know, you can rent an iOS developer or an Android developer, but they don't actually really have experience with startups or they don't actually know uh, as an organization, let's say, how, how to address problems that startups have. So, so we try to be a special type of organization that is actually designed to work with startups. And I think that's our unique uh, value proposition. Yeah. So those startups that uh, that come to you are are those uh, how how are they usually formed? So are there people on, uh, for, for example, uh, if if I started the startup, I have some technical knowledge, of course, uh, technical background, but not everybody has that. But some people do have a great great idea, for example. Uh, so how how is that? Um, how does that look on your end? So do you have a lot of people that also have a technical background or are they usually the guys with or girls with a great idea that want to, to build it out? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's usually the, the latter. So, so we are the ones that bring the, the technical expertise in most cases, but uh, there, is no, like, there is no hard rule. We, uh, as we work a lot with, with referrals and uh, with our big network of people that we know all over the world, you know, we we just we just find people as well organically, and um, and they come to us. So it's it's always like a different combination of spices that goes in there. Yeah, I, w- I would say like our early early adopters were non-technical founders uh, that were kind of uh, looking for uh, for a more technical co-founder. Um, and there are many there, there are many companies across the world trying to solve this problem in a different in different ways, um, because the elitistic the elitistic uh, you know class in Silicon Valley would tell you that you know you need to really hire your own team, have a CTO on board or a technical person as a co-founder. But actually, if you look at the ninety nine percent of the startups, they actually cannot do that because it's just a problem to find a co-founder um, and uh, or, or a co-founder that is technical. So I think it's, um, you know, if we don't take the elitistic standpoint where you say, okay, you know, like it's very possible to find a perfect co-founder, um, then then we actually want to serve the underdogs and to try to help, uh, you know, the remainder of the startups work uh, and be more successful. But I also think that we also, I mean, of course, we look for more experienced founders now as we evolve the company and we try to look for serial entrepreneurs and uh, and uh, that that is our optimal profile. Uh, and uh, and but still we we appreciate and support the underdogs as well because we we have this idealistic view that you know entrepreneurship is really a noble cause and uh, you know these people should not be left on the sidelines because they, they don't have a technical co-founder. Yeah. So how 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 are you how are you organized? So I know there are a lot of people working for you from Sarajevo. So uh, where are you all based at? And is it? A more of a remote company in that sense. How should I? How should I see that? Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's it's a remote friendly company. So we will always have people working from Thailand, or you know, we have a couple of employees uh, somewhere in Chiang Mai or 
you know places like that and <laughs> i mean in terms of the majority of the pe- the majority of the people is uh, is in sarajevo uh, we do also have uh, people in miami and in stockholm so it, so it's a combo of um, of people from from different places and uh, yeah as i said we are very remote friendly so it doesn't matter where people are at a specific moment uh, we eventually see ourselves as a, as, a, as a global company and we are also uh, working more on uh, on making us uh, present in, in more uh, geographical locations as well. Okay, so are, are those mo- more um, uh, the technical people behind it or also like, um, because I don't know if you really have any sales, if you can call it like that, because you're looking for startups that need uh, founded. Is that... Is that also? Is there also some kind of a sales component there? How how should I see that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's. I mean, we we are primarily trying to solve a product and recruitment problem. So because these are the two problems that early stage companies have, first, right? And uh, the product problem requires, if you think about it, like product managers, designers, um, developers, DevOps, QA, all of these people that are in this discovery and development process to discover uh, product market fit, basically and to, to build a product that has initial traction. On yeah. the other hand, uh, the recruitment problem is just a fact. In many of these cities, it's almost impossible to recruit. These, the cycles are six to nine months. So we also have people that can help startups recruit um, like on-site or, or, or in a more outsourced way. Uh, so, but, but the thing is, uh, we, we are thinking about adding on top of these things in the future. Uh, for now, I would say that we are not like really focused on sales and uh, you know business development in our, in our offering. We do act as an advisory structure, so very often we are in boards or uh, we take C level or VP positions in startups. Um, and uh, and the thing is, we 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 advise on on many strategic things in business development, but that is not something we offer as a service. Uh, you know, with, with a with a price tag no, <laughs> to no, the startups no. we work with. So we try to focus on on a few things and do them well. Yeah, so it's more of an, a network kind of thing, as you mentioned uh, before, uh, where uh, you're you're heavily dependent on, of course, uh, other people knowing other people and uh, uh, finding those kind of people from that kind of network as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, h- how? Uh, because as you as you mentioned before, a lot of startups fail, uh, especially in the first kind of phase of uh, of kind of their development. So how do you how do you maximize the probability of that that not happening? Because that's that seems a little bit tricky to me because it has multiple facets to it. Yeah, I can I can maybe start and then Faris can can fill in. Yeah. Uh, it's like uh, I mean, obviously the main part, the main component is the technology and the recruiting. Uh, so we make sure that that people uh, spin the MVP, or or which I mean sometimes we even get in when there is already a platform um, that that exists. So we so basically we just take over or build something in the proper way, and we make sure that that it has some longevity. So so there there is no need to do like fuller rights later or to hire another team in an unknown part of the world. So. Uh, that's the first. That's the first part where we de-risk the actual uh, infrastructure and the platform where everything is running on. Uh, and uh, of course, we make sure that the team is stable. So, I mean, we had situations where we were approached by pre- some pretty big companies and uh, with pretty big teams, where literally, like, all the team left in Stockholm or you know, 
um, there was a fight and then like uh, four key people quit, etc. We, we just we are just making sure that that doesn't happen on our end, and that we that we have the technology part uh, as stable as possible. The second part is. Um, as I said, um, the recruiting, and that sometimes involves even non-technical roles, as far as said. And um, uh, we, we help them recruit in the cities where they are based, uh, even for, um, I don't know, marketing personnel or even a CTO or whatever they might want or need um, and what what makes sense at the moment. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, uh, I mean, it's about de-risking, as Rashad said, because, because I mean, like, if you look at startups, there are many uh, theories about, you know, wh why startups fail <laughs> in the 90%. Uh, I mean, in the end, probably you can uh, really aggregate a lot of these into, uh, into a financial problem and the iteration problem, because in the end, um, you know, uh, if you look at an early stage startup to, to even iterate to even do the first iteration very often you need to spend a significant amount of time and money recruiting a team and then uh, you know building that internal culture to actually push forward really quickly and then uh, you have you need to have the technical chops and knowledge to roll out an mvp uh, let's say optimally in six weeks or or less uh, but even a few months is, is really like a big win for most startups uh, and uh, but but the thing is, this is not this is not what what actually how, how it works in the, on the ground. And we see that startups, uh, you know, have six to nine month recruiting cycles. Uh, then they cannot really hire the optimal people to execute. Uh, and then when they hire a team, it's I mean maybe externally it looks like they're doing well, but the thing is internally we see that a lot of startups are struggling to build a technology and to release as soon as possible um, a stable MVP that can collect feedback from from the from the market. Uh, so we try to de-risk these things, and then, and then, uh, of course, with our advice, into our advisory role, and talking to the founders, uh, and we, we try to to also attack different other risks that they have. So, uh, how how does it work when, for example, uh, the startup does uh, become successful, and then eventually they see that they want to have something in-house anyway? So, how does that transition look like? Have you ha had that uh, that kind of experience already? Yes, that's a good question. Um, we, as we are, we are not only uh, doing, let's say, the service work for startups, we also invest in them uh, in the sweat equity model. And uh, for us, it's generally important if we hold equity in a startup to, to make it succeed, so to not have that kind of conflict of interest. And, uh, to, and, and a part of that is as well um, letting go our own people that are working on on the startup and hiring uh, locally for them. So, so let's say if the startup is in Amsterdam, uh, we're going to help them to um, to hire whatever roles make sense to make the team more, most efficient. So the idea is to hire the best people and transition to the best combination. Uh, sometimes it's it's a remote team, sometimes it's a full local team, sometimes sometimes it's a combination. And uh, yeah, we, we do that very um, in a very nice nice way that uh, allows the startup for the maximum growth. I would say it's, it has to do a lot with the outcomes, and <clears throat> as Rashad said, it can be very different uh, combinations. We always try to be very flexible and adapt to the real problems we have, not the imaginary problems. And I think it's um, uh, if you look at startups, uh, you know, it's sometimes remote, full remote, like works really well. Uh, and then we don't really need to hire like a local team. Uh, there are even companies that don't have an office, which we uh, actually like a lot. 
you know, like Basecamp and many other startups like that, that, that are completely remote. Uh, actually, the company I was working with called Mixing Key was also fully remote. Uh, that was the last company I worked with before MOP. And uh, there was no office. And uh, we actually understand the value of the gig economy and, uh, you know, kind of being re- on the, the remote uh, culture. Uh, but also some teams maybe have uh, have a very strong need to be on site and uh, they want to be like an cu- uh, on-site culture uh, and they actually believe maybe more traditional ways of operating. And then uh, we are going to support that as well. Um, so we are not really uh, ideological about that. We try to adapt to whatever the founders want to set up. And then, as we said before, we try to be the founder's best friend uh, in a way that we want to make the product succeed and then whatever is needed uh, in that process, we're going to actually support with. Yeah, yeah so... Uh, one more thing, Amara. I mean, yeah. it's, it's very important for, for your listeners to understand that this model is actually, uh, like even many times, it cannibalizes your own profits. So it's not something that a lot of people would do. Uh, so it's more like a long-term play instead of the short-term play, because if you are, let's say... Um, renting people that are going to help in a specific startup, then you need to remove them, then, then it directly affect the revenues. And uh, we always look for the long term. So, so that's yeah. why the company is very unique from that, from that point of view. Yeah, and I mean, it, it makes sense, especially if you take an equity in a, in a startup, uh, that you even if you don't provide those services anymore to them, uh, that you still want them to succeed, even though they maybe go on to have an in-house team or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, w- to get back to the kind of starting phase of a, of a startup, because uh, a lot of people hang up on uh, picking technologies and picking the newest stuff and looking at uh, what they're going to use to, to build their product. So uh, how do you how do you look at that? So how how, uh, how would you go about that when you when you're first starting uh, uh, building something for a startup? Yeah, I mean, this, this is a problem I'm trying to uh write about and think recently and uh, uh, the short version of that of the of that answer is just choose a familiar technology and uh, go with that because i think that the actual goal or even the first okr of a startup is to launch as soon as possible and get the first feedback from the real users so the technology is not actually something you should be um, concerned about from a you know from a from a let's say uh, as, as the basic result or basic goal like choosing choosing a technology as, 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 a, as a target but actually that is only something you need to do to achieve the actual goal which is uh, launching and uh, prototyping and MVPs uh, are definitely you know a useful method we use um, to create things quickly uh, and uh, but again I mean all of these things are as useful as the feedback you got from them and uh, and uh, then then the question is what what technologies to use uh, actually and how how to how to choose them um, and uh, there are many situations where there are context specific answers like maybe you need to use unfamiliar technologies in some situations like maybe you are building a machine learning system and maybe Python is really the best choice and you are not familiar with it but most of the time I would say that uh, it's smart to choose technologies for rapid development and uh, technologies you are familiar with. Um, inside the company, we historically promote a, lot, a specific set of technologies because we believe they were a good baseline for uh, the specific context we operate in. So Node.js and Golang were kind of like the, the um, main 
two programming languages we promoted historically because we believe they strike a good balance between productivity, simplicity, but also familiarity inside of our company. And then uh, also because we, we we knew that most of the work on the startups is going to be input-output. Um, so writing from a database, reading <clears throat> reading from a database, writing to a database, uh, you know, calling external APIs, etc. So we kind of knew that uh, if we choose these technologies, the probability that it's not a complete miss in terms of technological architecture and technology choice is going to be pretty high because these technologies are really built for input-output. Um, but in the end, I mean, coming back to my main point is uh, it's more about launching quickly and uh, then familiarity is the most important parameter that uh, any team should look at. And th this is why we decentralize this decision. So we are not really imposing the technology from a, from a company level. So we look at the teams and we give them the opportunity to choose what they're familiar with to bootstrap as, as quickly as possible. Mm. How, how do you look at that, uh, Rashad? Yeah, I think Faris Faris said it well. You know, it's um, it's just about being pragmatic at the moment. You just look at the theme, look at you know, the needs of the, of the startup, and you just make the best decision. Um, I mean, we were developers for, for for about ten years, Faris and I, and we know exactly these how people make choices visually. <laughs> there are a lot of uh, either fanboys out there, on people that are not experienced enough, or you know, there is new hot, new, this new new hot technology that everyone wants to use, and we want to try it in this product. And I mean, we even see it with some more more senior people, uh, because as soon as something new comes out, uh, you know, everybody, everyone is crazy about it, and they want to try it on a production product. And uh, yeah. I mean, it's not usually the best thing to do. Yeah. Also, also one thing that is uh, maybe even the best piece of advice would be. Um, if you can like use off-the-shelf technology, I mean, we've we actually it's not very sexy for programmers, but uh, we've seen a lot of companies succeed with this model. Um, you know, a few health tech companies in Stockholm come to mind that we worked on, and uh, and then the thing is because I think that that programmers want to work with complex things, and uh, that is a that is usually a big problem. And, uh, you know, but but if everybody knows that their objective is actually to launch as soon as possible, I think that also the average programmer that loves a specific programming language that is very complicated or a specific architecture is going to be more than willing to drop it for the sake of uh, achieving the common goal. Uh, yeah. So I think it's all about putting the objective in perspective for everybody and understanding that the goal is not to build a perfect architecture, uh, you know, a state-of-the-art software or anything like that. The goal is actually to launch as soon as possible and collect feedback. So, yep. Yeah, yeah, that, and that's a that's a good point. I I'd like to add to that as well. Where, uh, when when we're building a pro project, for example, uh, what what we're doing right now is, um, what I hammer on a lot is uh, also like the the community support, right? Where, uh, sometimes you can find uh, some obscure thing that will probably solve your your problem, but if it's not supported or it's been outdated or whatever. Uh, just don't go for it because it will it will hurt you in the in the long run. Uh, that's something that a lot of um, a lot of people underestimate, right? Where they they pick a particular language, whatever it is, uh, because one of the developers loves it so much, but they don't look at okay, is that is that language going to be around in two or three years, right? And that's that's something that uh, I kind of stress a lot uh, in our team as well. 
where um, I say, listen, uh, this is something that we need to work with for a few years. Of course, you can pick your own front-end framework that you like or uh, whether it's Vue or whether it's Angular or what, whatever it is. Uh, if, if it... Makes the, if it makes it possible to reach the goal, then it's fine, right? And if you see that it's supported by a lot of people and it probably won't go away in the two or three years, that's also fine. So that's something that I wanted to add, is that uh, using the latest and greatest, uh, of course, sometimes is fun, for, and I, can, I, I know why developers like that, but uh, it's not always the best choice, right? The, the best choice is going for especially if you're if you're building a long term kind of thing uh to go for something that's tried and true and where you see i don't know for example if you're working on your backend you doing java or something like that you know there are a lot of people that that know that language that uh, there's a huge community out there uh if it's a good community or not that's not the point but it, there is a community behind it and that's something yeah, that i, I uh, just wanted to add you're completely right, Tamer, and, and I just want to add one more thing on top of this. Like, I'm gonna add one concrete example. Yeah. Uh, like, if, when you when you look at the stack core of a survey and, uh, and the statistics about the, the biggest like the biggest number of people per technology, and you can see exactly like uh, how how some how some types of stack, let's say, uh, you want to use Elixir or something like that. There is there is much there is much lower number of available developers that are going to do Elixir compared to let's say Node.js or Golang or something like that. And uh, even a situation that we had was, uh, which is a cautionary tale about also involving a lot of different people from all over the world without proper guidance is. Uh, like uh, that, that in one of our products we we introduced um, Scala at the time, and I mean we all know that Scala is a great technology and like it, it can be uh, it can be leveraged to build some pretty uh, pretty nice and performant systems. But uh, what we experienced is that uh, you know it was after after this technology was introduced by by a Russian um, a Russian colleague that joined as a remote worker uh, to be a part of the team. Uh, then after that, we really struggled to hire Scala developers down the line. So, uh, so there is a cautionary tale about you know allowing like let's say anyone to have a say in in the technology um, the technology footprint of the company. And um, I mean, on on the contrary, if you have a good enough team, they should be able to pick up anything. But sure. Uh, sure. let's be honest. I mean, how many people have uh, like a team of ten wizards? Uh, it's usually like, <laughs> it's usually like a combo of uh, more and less experienced people, and not everyone are are super proficient at, at picking up uh, everything that you throw down their alley. Yeah. Exactly, and that, I think this also kind of coming back to our let's say baseline uh, technologies. We we definitely choose them exactly for this reason because they have, as you said, like a big community <clears throat> and also like big module ecosystems where people create a lot of things in the open source. So you can kind of, uh, you know, assemble your legal blocks and build, build a startup. Um, and I think, I think JavaScript, uh, you know, Golang and technologies like that are, are really uh, great to, uh, to build quickly. Um, and uh, and uh, I, think, I think also that what, what you described, Damar, is really, really important because it, it has to do with, uh, with the recency bias because people actually value a lot what they were 
bombarded with marketing and uh, in recent weeks you know let's say for example if a new version of uh, python comes out uh, you can pretty much bet that a lot of people will talk about it and promote it and uh, you know like make a hype around it and uh, and uh, that, that's what that's what happens with most frameworks when they come out they are the tool to use on, on new products and then uh, there is this fine line between hobbies and um, you know production projects where people don't really differentiate these two things okay maybe it's good to try the new framework but then do you actually want to do that on a production project and uh, i agree completely i think it's about community longevity but also about familiarity and uh, you know have you actually used that technology in production i think that's a very good question yeah yeah for sure uh, i mean th that's something that uh, that happens a lot uh, that happened with uh, with docker as well if you look at the infra kind of in the infrastructure world where everybody was like yeah docker you need to use it and nobody's running it in production <laughs> or or things like serverless or whatever and everybody was like yeah we need to use it okay but why do you even want to use it right that's the the, the first question is why do you want to use it if it is because you don't want you want to you want it to perform and scale and you don't want to think about it fine use it right that's that's what it's for but uh, if you are just doing it to use it, I think that's the the wrong kind of uh, perception to look at it. We, we we of course also try and experiment with new things. Uh, that's that's not not different than any other company, but it's uh, just a small part, and we try to do it as small, start as small as possible, and see if it works. And that's that's the the, the key difference there, I think. Uh, yeah. yeah so yeah, sorry, and my fellow developers, you know, are gonna hate me for saying this, but <laughs> you know, like half of the web is running on PHP, man, and like yeah. uh, so most of the corporations are corporations are still using .NET, Java, and Oracle, and that that's the ugly truth, you know. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I, 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 I think. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, also there is like a contrarian thought to what we are talking about, and uh, I mean, if you look at what Paul Graham was writing about in. Uh, in his uh, article called "Beating the Averages," I think I mean what what he talked about was that when they used when they built this startup in 1995 called Via Web, they were using Lisp, and uh, then kind of Lisp was almost like a superpower because uh, nobody was using Lisp at the time, and then they could have like a technology that uh, gave them you know special uh, capabilities, and uh, but also it attracted people. That were true hackers to the company and i mean there is some truth to this i mean for example when we actually started using docker which you mentioned in the company it was a bit early i would say it wasn't like a very you know pragmatic decision maybe um, but but actually it also attracted some really good people to the company because they wanted to work with the latest and greatest technologies um, so i mean there are many different trade-offs that we are making here i would i would say it's not necessarily that um, there is one single cookie cutter advice but uh, generally, you know, familiarity is very important. I think that that's our bottom line. Yeah, and the the, the thing is, uh, when I think about when when I think back to uh, the different project that we did, we we also picked Docker, for example, and went with microservices. We were like, okay, we need to microservice everything, and what we ended up with was a lot of microservices. Uh, where the need wasn't even there for microservices, right? And that's <laughs> that's the thing. It, it was the hype at that time, and everybody was like, "Okay, you need to build as small pieces as possible." But what we didn't think about, or what we didn't think about enough, was the complexity that goes into managing all that stuff, right? Where you all have the, let's say you have eight microservices or something like that. You need to manage that somehow, and that takes time, and that takes uh, resources that 
you as a small company don't have you you don't have that you're not google or something like that that's that's something to 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 uh to think about as well when starting off in a project like this i think um so um what do you what do you see for the future so because uh looking at the startups and how they start what do you what do you see changing there in the future how do you mean? Can you just elaborate? Yes, sure. So, uh, say for instance, uh, startups uh, usually now are like looking for funding, investment, and stuff like that, and then they start building. And then, uh, do do you see that uh, changing in somehow, uh, shape or form? Because you are already changing it a little bit by being some kind of a technical partner, but also uh, maybe investing in them by uh, having equity or whatever. So, uh, how do you how do you, do you see that changing? for other startups as well uh, that you don't help at the moment? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a hard question. I think it's, uh, it's actually a very good question. I think it's, um, things will definitely change because, uh, I mean, how we see it, but maybe we're really, really wrong. <laughs> I think it's uh, that the, the startup ecosystems are a bit broken, um, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, we see that, you know, you have VCs pushing huge and insane amounts of money uh, into uh, tech companies that they don't really understand. Uh, you know, WeWork comes to mind, uh, and then you, you, you know, and and then 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 kind of they don't really provide more than money or uh, networking to uh, to the companies they work with. Maybe there is a bit of you know bootstrapping or boot camps uh, that they do some smarter VCs, but usually it's just like a very uh, kind of it's very oriented towards financing. And then you have these public agencies which are giving grants to companies, uh, but these grants are not really enough to start up. Like uh, these public agencies in Stockholm are doing a really good job, but most of the startups are really left out, and they get like very little funding to from from the public from public grants. Then you have these consulting companies which are not really helping too much startups as well because they don't believe in startups. They cannot make good margins on startups, and then. Also, uh, you know, there are just other more lucrative projects. And uh, then, then I think uh, you, you have also other components in the ecosystem. And I think, I mean, this is a problem because the reason that 90% startups fail is not that, you know, people have shitty ideas or, uh, or that they have also, that they couldn't find product market fit, you know, or that they, very often it's a problem of uh, financing iteration and uh, uh, and support structures to, to enable that because because in the end it's, it's, if you can iterate 37 times on your product and you are decently you know intelligent uh, I'm pretty sure that over time you're gonna learn from your failures and mistakes and then you're gonna be able to to build uh, uh, you know a decently successful company so so I believe that uh, you know I don't know what's gonna happen exactly in the future it's very hard to forecast these yeah, kind of, of things to, to foresee the future. But I think that uh, we're going to see structures that are going to be more supportive uh, for startups on, in the early stage, I think, uh, because the opportunity to, for, for monetary gains is also in the early stage. Because if you invest in the early stage, if you are, in the, if you are there in the early stage, you reap a lot of benefits. Um, so we'll see. I don't know, Rashad, do you have any, anything to add? I think you answered it well. So, so we're going to see like a rise of, of, of different types of organizations and companies that are going to be a uh, support for the whole um, for the whole timeline of a startup, and and I mean it's not enough to just just go in there as an investor and uh, yeah give me your metrics. Uh, I'm gonna spray and pray uh, on those numbers, and 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 think that something magical is gonna happen. Like and 
you get my point. I mean, it's it needs to it needs to go down more to the actual quality and to the true facts and to checking stuff and to working with people and at every stage of the company. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've seen some pretty high-profile investors not even checking the numbers that we're giving to them, and um, and I'm gonna tell you, um, you know, everyone everyone like believes in this notion that we should completely trust uh, like everyone that we work with, and of course that, that we are trying to do that as well. But uh, eventually, um, I think that uh, you know even investors are gonna need um, to pay more attention at what they're investing in, and you know to do more. Uh, more checks to to make sure that they have, um, you know, they have a stable situation in a startup. Um, a lot of a lot of startups still, unfortunately, are, um, are a little bit, uh, you know, beautifying the numbers, and uh, you know, it's uh, they're making it look uh, bigger than they are, and you know, it's. Uh, I think the next generation of investors is gonna literally have access to the databases and to. To, to check stuff themselves. <laughs> yeah, 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 that makes sense. That's gonna de-risk the, the that's gonna de-risk the investments. Uh, I mean, from our end, we are we are helping with one part. There are many parts of, of the startup evolution that where where people need help. And as far as said, probably if this was the case, and you know, if if people were putting more hours into understanding the actual problems and needs, then we might see even a twenty to thirty percent increase in the overall uh, success rates. Yeah, I think the 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 main problems, or at least one of the problems that I've 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 seen uh, happening is that um, investors are uh, are tricky because they usually just bring in money, right? And they say, okay, I want a, a stake in the company. I'll give you this this amount of money, uh, but they don't really follow through on. Because they, as you said, they are kind of investing on multiple things, right? Where they are like, okay, I have ten startups that I'm investing in right now. Uh, they they can't help all those ten startups at once, right? Where they can actually contribute to something to to make it make it a success. So they're putting their trust into the founders, and then the 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 thing is that they really need to they need to trust those founders and see that they have that thing to bring that startup to a success. And that's that's really hard to do uh, based on a few conversations that you have with someone, right? Because someone can give you a, a great presentation about what the startup will actually be and what, where they think they it will go. Uh, but that doesn't have to be the reality of how, and usually it's not the reality of what happens in the real world, if you can call it like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, uh, yeah. If you look at Look at the at San Francisco. One of the main reasons why um, why this this whole this everything happened in Silicon Valley is because uh, people were uh, tremendously ethical and moral about everything that they do, and the whole ecosystem was built on top of that. And, and now, as uh, as we see uh, more startup cities and more startup environments being built all over the world. Um, you know, it also means different cultures, uh, different ways of doing business, uh, different kinds of people, and um, definitely one of the main things is 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 actually if you can trust the people that you're working with, and because that uh, if if you know that they are good people, uh, eventually, um, I mean, at least you're not going to have these problems as we're talking about now. Also, to connect to the people point, I think it's uh, I mean, everything starts from from the team. And uh, the thing is, you know, why Silicon Valley worked, it was exactly, you know, because you had this this network of trust, let's say 100 people. Some people say there were like 100 people that were actually helping each other uh, and sharing their information and paying it forward in a way. 
and then uh, the whole ecosystem evolved bottom up uh, you know from these people from these initial founders that were like sharing and trusting each other as Rashad said um, and then also helping recruit for each other and uh, you know and then the the investor problem and all of these other problems we're talking about were not that amplified because these people were actually mentoring each other and helping each other succeed and uh, something similar happened in Stockholm as we can see, even though there is not like hard data to support this uh, hypothesis, but uh, but many people say that it's the same thing. Uh, there were, you know, like a few dozen people that, uh, you know, exited their companies, uh, wanted to help other each other, and then they were like reinvesting in the ecosystem and building new companies. And then, uh, you know, even the PayPal mafia and the similar examples are support that idea. And I think it's a... Uh, it's all about building a community where you have support. That community acts as an educational structure, which is something very important for entrepreneurs because in the end, uh, a lot of these problems are exacerbated by the fact that entrepreneurs don't really have a place to learn how to be entrepreneurs. And there are many theories that say that people cannot be educated to be entrepreneurs. I'm on the opposite side of thinking that actually people can be educated. Uh, but uh, I understand why people are saying that. And I think, I mean, that's actually, if you look at the data, if you look at what, what people do in schools of entrepreneurship, et cetera, or MBAs, you can see that actually these people don't come out as uh, entrepreneurs that are going to make success right away. Um, so I think education is a very big component. And uh, and that very often starts from the people you work with. And uh, it's more like, a, you know, it's like a peer-to-peer -peer educational experience. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's a good point. Uh, I mean, you can you can almost learn anything uh, by going to school and seeing that. But actually, starting a company is something that's uh, you you live and you learn, as you could call it. Um, I mean, it's it's uh, it's the same way for starting a software project as well. Where uh, if you haven't done it before and haven't been in that position of being a product owner or whatever, uh, you learn along the way that. Uh, Stripping down, uh, as for for example, in the first version, is is the most ex uh, most important thing to to look at. Really, what do you need for the real bare bones? Uh, and uh, MVP has been uh, have been has been called in this uh, in this call as well. But um, I I look at it a little bit different. Where I say you need to have a first version that's actually marketable in the sense that uh, you could you could sell it to other people if you're looking at a SaaS, for example, or whatever. Uh, and you you need to look at okay, what's the bare minimum that someone needs to actually use the product, and then you can go from there. And that's uh, that's something I think is important for uh, a startup as well to to look at. Um, so I have one more question to wrap up. Uh, and that's uh, it's a question for both of you, of course. Uh, so, what are you most proud of since you started this whole journey of uh, starting Ministry of Programming? Yeah, maybe I can start, and then Paris can can feel. Like, you know, it's <laughs> just making this coordination effort to. Yeah. Because it's the first time that you have two two people on the other end. For sure. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, we're, we're very proud of. Uh, of the company that we have built because it's it's surpassing the actual uh, geographical locations uh, where we are present and uh, i think we have a unique culture and unique network of people that we work with and uh, i think that's that's one of the things that i'm most most proud of because we have built something uh, like uh, a really good good uh, cultural network that is gonna uh, fuel the success for the coming years and is going to as well fuel success for a lot of people that 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 work in our network not necessarily 
um, through this uh, traditional outsourcing or, star- or software services model or however you want to call it, but also in many other ways as we discussed. And, um, you know, we can also see that we are uh, moving the needles and that uh, moving the needle and that we, uh, we're actually contributing to make people more successful uh, to, to raise the odds of, of succeeding. So that's that's one of the things that I'm most proud of, uh, and uh, yeah, I think we have a very proud, very bright future. So, Faris, what do you think? I would say I'm I'm very proud that we built uh, an amazing place to work where we where we enjoy you know to work where we where it's fun where we can come and uh, you know um, and 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 kind of work with amazing founders and employees that um, are building really creative things because I think uh, riding the wave of innovation, as we say. Is really interesting because uh, we often end up in directions that uh, are not really something we were planning to to do. Like uh, for example, now we work a lot with smart cities and IoT or mental health, and uh, we're solving very important problems. And I think I think that's something that uh, I'm really proud of. Uh, I'm not saying we're good at it, you know. And I often say we are not actually startup experts because <laughs> I actually believe that you would need to, you know, work 200 years in this domain to be uh, an expert. Uh, because it's so complicated, but that that is exactly why it's fun. Because uh, you know we, you learn endlessly, and you iterate, and you grow as a person. And you watch companies fail and succeed. Uh, so I'm really glad we built this system, and uh, and uh, also I'm really glad I, I could you know I can work with my brother and uh, our, our our extended family, um, you know, every day because uh, that trust and that safety. Uh, it's a psychological safety that you cannot really get uh, maybe working for somebody or with unknown people. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, there are many, many things, you know, we could talk uh, long, but we're very grateful, I would say, to, um, to, to, be, to have the opportunity even to do this and have a profitable company, which is very important. <laughs> very cool, very cool. So uh, thanks, guys, of course, for your time. Uh, where can uh, people find you on the internet? I mean, we are... We are- we are present on, uh, I mean, of course, our websites, ministryofprogramming.com, and uh, also social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn as well. So, so feel free to reach out to us uh, with any questions or, um, yeah, I mean, if we can help in any way, we're always happy to do so. Okay. Very cool. Um, and thanks again, guys. Uh, it was fun to talk to you guys. I think we could go for hours, but <laughs> we, need to, we need to wrap up. Uh, so, uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks. No problem. Um, and of course, for the listeners, you can find the Bits vs. Byte podcast on bitsvsbytes.com and also on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. It's all bitsvsbytes. And uh, subscribe to the newsletter. Uh, you get uh, five things every two weeks uh, in your mail with uh, interesting stuff about leadership, business, and technology. So you can find that on bitsvsbytes.com newsletter. And I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time.